0: Hi, it's Zoe, and I had the deep honor of interviewing one of my mentors and one of the people I admire most in the world, Cindy Wigglesworth. She's the president and founder of Deep Change and the author of the best selling book, SQ21 The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. Her work has had a massive impact on me and my work. Her principles of leading better through wisdom and compassion while maintaining inner and outer peace is one of the fundamental principles that I have tried to live into and to teach others as we go through our journey of leadership. This conversation was incredibly profound for me. I found it moving and I think you will too. In it, she helps us to realize that we can each carry a candle in the world and have a massive impact and there's lots of work for us to do as leaders in this world. If you like this podcast, please share with others, let them know. I think it's an important message that we all need to to hear and to spread around the world. If you like the podcast in general, please hit subscribe. That would be awesome to keep you listening to all the episodes that I'm putting out on perspective and point of view. And of course, it always helps the show if you rate and comment in the notes, wherever you listen to the podcast. So let's tune in. Let's talk to Cindy. Cindy Wheelsworth, thank you so much for being on the podcast. As you know, I've been an SQ21 certified coach, I don't know for how long, it seems like a long time, 10 years maybe. I would guess 10 years, yes. Yeah, and your book came out, what year did it come out, SQ21? Um,
1: The hardcover came out in 2012 and the paperback in 2014.
0: Wow. Okay, so I've been deeply immersed in your work, even though you may or may not know it, uh, for all that time. And when I read this book, it was profoundly perspective-shifting for me in terms of integrating aspects of spirituality and bigger concepts into everyday living and life and leadership. And I'm excited about our conversation today to get to know more about you, the person, the individual, and your perspective about growth and leadership as well as to dive into some of the core concepts. I think there's no bigger, more important conversation to have right now than building a more wise and compassionate world. And I just wanted to honor you, first of all, in the work that you've put out into the world over all this time and to welcome you
1: onto the podcast. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yes, very
0: exciting. Um, one of the things I've noted or noticed in your career is that you do everything for a very long time <laughs> in big, <laughs> deep chunks.
1: <laughs> yes, I do that. I am uh, when I commit to something, I commit to it. So I do have long chunks of time where uh, I will be focused on one particular thing, and then when I shift my focus, I really shift.
0: That's right. Well, we you, you twenty years at Exxon in HR, yes, and then jumping into running your own practice right and when what was i'm curious about that shift actually like what was that shift like to go from an employee in a mega corporation into running your own business
1: it's a very strange transition in some ways it was a huge relief because it had been on my heart for years before i left I loved my career at Exxon, which of course became ExxonMobil. I learned a lot and it was responsible in some ways for the career I went to because I was trained well, I learned a lot, I learned about leadership and what I thought was required for effective leadership. And I also saw what I felt was a gap in terms of the research and training that was available to leaders for becoming really effective. And as I was doing my own personal growth work, I felt I was becoming a more effective leader, but there was really no one helping leaders do the same thing that I saw, which was as you shifted less to being about ego and more to being about higher self, you actually became a really good leader, a better leader. People followed volitionally instead of following out of compliance. So I went looking for who was doing this SQ21 equivalent work, this spiritual intelligence work and couldn't find it. So it was both the excellent training I got and the training that was missing that sort of inspired me to go create because I couldn't find it out there in the leadership development world. Somebody needed to do it, nobody was doing it. So I finally decided why not? I'll give it a crack.
0: (laughs) That's a very Australian expression. I'll give it a crack.
1: (laughs) Well, I used to live in Australia, so I do have a few uh, Australianisms scattered around in my vocabulary.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Where did you live in
1: Australia? (laughs) I lived in Sydney for four years when I was in high school.
0: Really fantastic. Well, you're one of us, and I say us, even though I sound non-Australian because I'm Canadian originally. (laughs) But I I can vote, and I'm a citizen now too, so I bridge the ditch just like you in some ways. Um, One of the things you mentioned, which I think is central, well, two things you mentioned that are central to your work and this whole principle of how to be a better leaguer, is the ego to a higher self. Um, How did you notice? And label and identify the differentiation between ego and higher self?
1: Well, you know, when I think about my personal growth trajectory, and I've become very interested in adult development in general over the years. So, in hindsight, I can see some things. In hindsight, I would say I was growing and maturing as I went through a divorce and a remarriage and the birth of my daughter, all of which are stimulus for profound reflection. I got into therapy, which was extremely helpful. And I left the Roman Catholic Church and found a uh, church that was much more compatible with my evolving perspective, which is the Unity Church, a very pluralistic church. They embrace all faiths, but they're really about embodying love. So as I'm studying some of their materials and starting to read very widely across the world religions, and I'm doing the therapy work, I'm starting to realize that if you look at therapy and you look at spirituality, there's some pretty big overlaps around what is healthy and what is not healthy. Self-absorption or narcissistic gratification is not healthy and will generally lead you to unhealthy places. And if you've been around narcissists, you know they're exhausting to be around. And so I started understanding psychological dynamics at the same time I was studying spiritual dynamics. And I realized the way psychology used the word ego was a little different than the way the spiritual traditions use the word ego. So I've sort of smushed them together in my understanding. So the ego is not evil. The ego is part of our psychological dynamic, but it can be immature or mature. And I wanted to mature, but I also wanted the ego to be in service to what I conceived of as a greater mission or a greater purpose, and uh, my soul or my spirit or a commitment to something larger than myself. So I started thinking about this dynamic between the selfish self or the smaller self or the human self and the divine aspect of the self or the mature, noble aspect of the self. So that started informing my leadership development as I was doing my own personal growth. Started seeing huge impacts both in my private life and in my professional life. And I realized this was important stuff that we didn't talk about in the corporate world because it was religion, not work. And that artificial dichotomy was a problem. Um, And so I felt like something needed to integrate better.
0: Yes, and bringing the word spirituality and religion into workplaces Is fraught with peril, I guess. And you go to great pains in the book to explain what you mean by spirituality um, and spiritual intelligence. And from my understanding, and you can, I'll double check it with you. Spiritual intelligence is the is the connection to something higher and bigger than oneself, one individual self. So it, it transcends religions and includes them. Is that correct, or would you add something?
1: So I'd break it into three pieces. A lot of people think religion and spirituality are the same, and they are not spirituality is the larger word, and that's what you were defining, an innate human need to be connected to something larger than ourselves. Religions are human constructions where we build um, a set of rituals, we may have some sacred texts, we may feel they're divinely inspired, but they're created and established and continued by us. And religions are a much smaller word. So religion is a small word, spirituality, huge word. Spiritual intelligence is like emotional intelligence and that it's a set of skills and that's where it becomes a lot less scary. So if you think, okay, I'm not trying to bring religion into the workplace or into anybody's life. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. You are already innately spiritual. I don't need to do that for you. You have that within you. What each of us needs is to learn spiritual intelligence skills, just like we need to learn emotional intelligence skills. We're born with emotions, but we don't really know how to manage them well or how to manage our interpersonal skills well. That comes with practice. And similarly, learning how to move from ego to higher self and operate from what I would call compassion, wisdom, and peace is where you go with spiritual intelligence. So it's EQ on steroids. It's like EQ gets you to empathy and good social skills. SQ gets you to compassion, wisdom, and peace.
0: <laughs> I love that. And is compassion compassion and wisdom are definitely mentioned in the book. Is peace in there as well? Or was I just blind to that the first time I read the book?
1: Um, the definition I created of spiritual intelligence is the ability to behave with wisdom and compassion while maintaining inner and outer peace, regardless of the circumstances or the situation. So the pieces of that that matter are it's an ability to behave. So it's not just sitting in the forest, meditating and experiencing love in that moment, which is a state experience, which is fine, but it's much harder than that. It's taking that into your behaviors to show up in your daily life. To behave with wisdom and compassion is to behave with love. The definition of love from the East that I use is that love is a bird with two wings. One wing is compassion and the other wing is wisdom. If either wing is broken, the bird cannot fly. So love requires the best of our heart and the best of our mind, compassion and wisdom to behave with love. And then the ability to sustain inner and outer peace, regardless of the craziness, is the saintly level of this application. And, oh, Lord, do I need it some days around here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask, how are you going with that? Because I struggle, I think, often (laughs) maintaining that inner and outer peace.
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, it is a discipline that requires us to self-manage really well and to keep perspective. So if you can be in the perspective of the soul... You can see from an eternal perspective that everything is always okay, but I don't believe in just staying in that perspective. We're embodied. We're supposed to be here. We're supposed to engage with life, and life is messy and crazy, so how do you sort of find that place of being in the world but not of the world? It's one of those great paradoxical spiritual challenges for growth, and I would say that's really one of the core reasons I study spiritual intelligence myself, is that I need to build the muscles that I talk about in the book that allow you to sustain your faith in difficult times.
0: Yes. And I think being called to the work that we most need to learn ourselves is a hallmark of teachers more broadly. And (laughs) I, I thank you for making it sound attainable, I guess, or (laughs) highlighting the fact that it's a discipline and a practice, and it's not something that you just wake up with.
1: No. Um, And, you know, I look at it as kind of a percentage of a day, any day when I can spend more than half the day operating in a spiritually intelligent fashion, I'm like, yay, this was a success, you know, (laughs) and I'll have some days where I'm, you know, not doing so great. And I'll have some days when I'm just really being in the compassion, wisdom and peace most of the time. It's not a Thing you attain and you stay there it's like it's a constant practice and life throws you challenges and sometimes life throws a lot at you at one time and we need to have some self-forgiveness around that
0: have you been fortunate enough to have people in your world that are percentage wise spending more time in that area of um, peace and equanimity than not Yes So they have that wise and compassionate action, and they show up as a, a common healing presence, which is one of the skills in the book. You've met them and had experience of them?
1: Um, well, I, I've been blessed to be on meditation retreat for a week with Thich Nhat Han. I mean, talk oh, really? about someone who Fantastic. embodies that. Yes. Um, now, of course, he's not well anymore, and he's not teaching anymore, but uh, when he was younger 20 years ago approximately, 19 years ago, I went on a one week long retreat with him and his monks and nuns and yeah, it's an amazing experience. And I've been in an audience with the Dalai Lama a couple of times when he appeared in Houston, um, a man who radiates all of those attributes. And my own uh, therapist and mentor, Reverend Pittman McGeehee, who is a Jungian analyst and an Episcopalian priest embodies a lot of this. So I feel I've been very blessed. And quite a few unity ministers, you know, nobody embodies it 100% of the time. But being a light unto the world, even part of the time, is a beautiful thing. And we don't have to all have our candles lit every single second. But if among a group of us, we can each carry the light for part of the day and part of the week and part of the year, it helps to light the world.
0: That just makes me want to weep. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's just... Beautiful, and I, I think it's um, it's something that we can all carry with us. Um, mm-hmm. Just to be a light onto the world for even small moments of the day is a gift to everyone. Yes. yes. Um, back to perspective of time, and perspective of time is one of an of a, a advanced spiritual intelligence skill, and being able to see and experience and contemplate history and future is an important thing for you. You know, we started the call talking about twenty year. Horizons. You've been 20 years at Exxon, then 20 years so far in your deep change practice. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What does the next 20 years hold for you?
1: Yes. So the next 20 years, I like to think of myself as being mostly retired, although it's a challenge because I keep being tempted to do this or do that, but to be more in founder mode around my business and handing off as much work as possible to the next generation of trained coaches because you guys need the experience. You you know, I wanna give you the work now to help multiply the impact that's out there. I've had plenty of time to give speeches and to give workshops. So for me, it's about supporting the community so that you guys can be out there doing the work and using the assessment to help people. I also see it as a really important time for being a mom and a grandma. I've got uh, three kids, my husband and I have three kids between us and four grandkids and I have come to appreciate that while I could be a coach to many people other people can also coach those same clients but I cannot be replaced as a grandma and Those little kids need me to show up for them and to see them with the eyes that grandparents see them with, which is like, you're the most perfect embodiment of humanity I've ever seen. Let me kiss all your little toes and fingers. You know, you're just like, (laughs) perfect. We need that, you know? And so my grandkids need me, my kids need me, my husband needs me, my mom, my mother-in-law. And so I'm being very attentive to the relationships where my role is not replaceable. Hmm. So that's the next 20 years for me. Um, And in terms of a calling, I have had a slight shift in my sense of what is mine to do, which is I'm going to work more locally so that I can be more present for my family. But um, I'm feeling like I'm doing the founder role for Deep Change, and I'm doing a advocacy role within my church community to help foster a climate that's wanting to arise of what can we do to deal with racial and political healing. So that's that's my volunteer work these days.
0: Oh, and that's such a big work as well. Uh, my sister married an American, and every two years we travel to the U.S. and immerse ourselves in American culture and um, bear witness to what's happening there. And, of course, we bear witness to it all the time in Australia via the media, which isn't necessarily always the best uh, indicator of what's going on, but it's the loudest piece that we get And the need for spiritual and political healing is very significant in the United States. Yes, it
1: is. And And I'm really, this is going to sound odd, but I have come into a place of deep gratitude to our current president, who I did not vote for and am not a fan of in any way as a human being, except for the fact that he is an evolutionary agent for us. He is bringing forth our darkest shadow, and forcing us to look at it. And it's humiliating and it is painful. But I don't know how we would grow up if we were not confronted with the things we have refused to face. So I think having Obama as president created the time when Trump could become president because there was this huge backlash to the fact that Obama was black. And for those of us who are more liberal, who were deluded into thinking, oh, well, you know, we had the civil rights era and things have been on a really cool upward trajectory. Yay, we're evolving. And now we have a black president. Isn't this great? You know, everything's better. We were brokenhearted to realize things were not better yet. Maybe better than 1960s, but nowhere near a post-racial society. And in fact, you know, the reflection that has come upon us in the last three to four years, and I'll speak more for myself, but I know many other white people would say this as well, has caused me to re-examine my assumptions in really profound and painful ways. That once you do it, it feels really good to have done it, but the doing of it is just awful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Ken Wilber wrote, wrote a great paper on this, The Post-Truth World, where he looks at that and he talks about surfacing all what the the liberal perspectives thought they were winning, and even the concept of winning is fraught with peril. And I agree with you, and I've, I've said as much in public in different speeches as well, that uh, Trump has catalyzed the movement um, to get people to talk about what they value and what the challenges are and to force us to look at others perspectives with, with grace and compassion, and not just dismiss their voices, uh, because they're different to ours. And you're right, it is a challenging process to go through to, to look at each other's humanity, uh, underneath all the slogans and, and um, vitriol that's out there.
1: Yes, but even more painful than that, I would agree with everything you said. But even more painful than that has been unearthing in myself, my cultural training. So if you are raised in the United States and I was only half raised here, I was also partially raised overseas, but if you're even half raised here, you were raised inside of a racist perspective where white is better than any other color. And no matter how liberal your own self image is, it is somewhat a lie until you have turned the mirror inward and looked at the autonomic, this sort of autonomic system, the automatic programming that is running that you did not install. It's like a virus that's running in the background, but you don't have the malware installed yet to start detecting it. So once you start looking to see and to learn, How am I, as a white person, not aware of a black person's life experience? Well, it's heartbreaking and thank God for cell phone cameras because so much is being videotaped now that for anyone who's willing to see, the information is just glaringly available. But then you sort of have to go to the even next step. You know, it's like, wow. Okay, so yeah, the justice system is not completely just. It's very biased. But where else is there a problem? And there's problems all over the place. The systemic racism that has been put into our legal and economic systems was established a long time ago post Civil War, but it keeps being reestablished. It's like this virus keeps mutating. And so you sort of play whack a mole you know, you whack this one and you get that one in shape and it pops up over here and you try to whack that one and it pops up. So we haven't had a really deep healing of the systemic racism, in part because it's a very high level of cognitive complexity to learn to see systems. And in part, it's a brutal level of self-honesty to realize how we have set up, and I don't mean like me personally, but white people in general have set up systems that privilege their children above other children by keeping certain neighborhoods white and certain schools white and giving, preferential access to jobs based on referrals, which means by white people. You know, and once you start seeing it, it's like this thread you pull on and the tapestry starts unraveling and you realize, ah, this is everywhere. It's fairly heartbreaking, but you can't fix a thing until you see it. And so I would say the last three years for me have been about the courage to see, the willingness to read things I would never read before, to sit in conversations I would never have sat in before, to attend conferences I didn't even know existed uh, about white privilege and systemic racism and things like that, and to consider if I'm really about love in the world, if I'm really about spiritual intelligence in the world, where have I personally been completely uninformed, and then how can I heal my own perspective so that I can be useful, because you can't be useful until you do your own cleanup, you know?
0: I think the willingness to look is the, is the critical piece there, or, and the ability to look too. And um, I remember sitting and talking to a friend of mine in the US and had made the observation that the New York subway system was worse than the Delhi metro station uh, subway system. And they were they freaked out over that. And I'm like, well, I've seen both. <laughs> I can compare <laughs> with my own eyes. <laughs> it's, it wasn't a judgment thing, except for you know, in the Delhi subway system I mean, above, above ground, it's appalling in old Delhi and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Underneath there, it's, it's a fantastic, it's as good as Japan in some ways, though they have guys wow. with machine guns at the entranceway. It's clean, it's efficient, it's on time. Um, in the U.S., New York subway system, there's homeless people spread all through there. And right. it's a scary place, as far as I can tell. Anyway, I was sharing this story with my friend in the U.S., and they completely dismissed it. They just did not want to hear it that at all. Like, oh, they think that's bullshit. <laughs> I'm like, it's right. it's not. Even though I could explain it, I even had pictures. No, it just it just went straight up against their concept of who they were and what their country was, and right. it was too painful and too ridiculous and too jarring to their own worldview for them to even consider that insight from somebody else.
1: I think Americans are having to reflect on our self-concept. For people who are black or brown in this country, they've seen more clearly the truth of what this country is. But for white people, we were raised on history textbooks that elevated a lot of white male heroes and made the United States the good guy in a world filled with conflict. So we were the light on the hill of the best democracy, the fairest country, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you start having that shattered, whether you're looking at racism or you're looking at our colonial sort of police force mentality in the world. Um, I remember this being challenged when I was a teenager, when we got into the Vietnam War and I was living in Australia, and the Australians were very opposed to the Vietnam War, and I was an American with a very obvious accent, you know, I'm getting all this feedback. It's like, who is, who am I? What is my country? What do we stand for? When that is challenged, you either have the courage to go into the question, or you put up this huge barrier of, I don't believe it, and that's what you ran into, and I think that's a lot of what we're dealing with right now and have been since September 11th, actually of not being willing to see the places in which we really have to grow up and be better. Um, I won't say be best. I could make a really sarcastic comment about that. But (laughs) (laughs) we got to grow up and be better people and live up to the ideals we have stated for ourselves. I still believe in our ideals. I just think the gap between us and our ideals is bigger than I realized.
0: We're wrestling with that in Australia as well. The white Australia policy was something that came through the 50s around the same time as the civil rights movement in the U.S. And it's integrated into our systems and our perspective as well. And it's not getting, it's getting some traction in terms of what have we done to our Aboriginal people and this beautiful heritage. And we've got to unpick a lot of that as well. Um, but there's fewer of us and there's fewer Aboriginal people left in Australia too. So it's It's the hidden secret as opposed to the more visible one that it is and pervasive one that is in the U.S. So Australians are doing their own healing process with that in in fits and starts, I I would say. Uh, So we're all all on a similar journey over here. For people to be able to go there and to have those questions, those are high-level spiritual intelligence skills, and you have to have all the ego development done before that, before you can start to actually challenge that, and you need to have all your... Your first base is covered as well in terms of survival requirements, like have a roof over your head, a job that pays the bills and feel secure, I reckon, before you can start challenging that. Do you agree or disagree?
1: I think it's complicated. You know, I think about people like Mother Teresa who had nothing and did so much. And, you know, I've, I've been in these conversations before on stages of development and Maslow's hierarchy and... Do you have to take care of the bottom of the hierarchy before you can self-actualize? I think there is some truth to the great majority of us, if our survival is challenged, we'll go down in terms of our maturity level, we'll go down the spiral of development into earlier stages. I think that's true for a while, but at some point you hit a sufficient level of maturity that your tendency to regress is less, that you're more able to sustain your core in the face of difficulties, some people seem to hit that very quickly. You know, I think of what so many people like Nelson Mandela have been through, and maybe they're even formed in the fire of the difficulties. The essence of them that becomes so noble is formed in the midst of all that difficulty. So I don't know that it's an easy thing to explain. There's a bit of mystery about it. But there does seem to be something in each of us that given a chance, assuming we're not dealing with some overwhelming mental health issue that's impairing our ability to execute on it, I think you know we're called to growth. And that's a beautiful thing and a mysterious thing. And all we can do is try and take what is and work with it in whatever way seems to make sense.
0: I love that, we are called to growth. And that gives me hope and uh, excitement about that. Because if we have to get everybody to base level before they can self-actualize and and make significant contributions from a a loving, wise and compassionate perspective, then it's going to take a long time. But if, as you say, it's that kind of perspective can be forged through difficulty, whether or not you have a high level of personal comfort or or not, Mm -hmm. then great, (laughs) we can progress human evolution and individual growth more quickly, which is which is what the world needs, absolutely.
1: Indeed, and sometimes comfort could get in the way of our growth. You know, we often grow in the face of challenge, so too much comfort can make us lazy.
0: Yes, too much comfort can absolutely make us lazy. Uh, (laughs) Though, you know, I wouldn't wish some of the challenges I've experienced or that you've experienced on anyone, you know. It's just what we get given. Um, And I think people, we're actually way more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. You only find that out in the crucible.
1: Yes, yes, indeed.
0: So I have something I wanted to, two things I wanted to clarify with you. So ego to higher self, the way that you described it, it sounded like a spectrum. And I think in my mind previously, they've been two separate entities. Is it more of a spectrum? So ego can be immature sense of self to more mature sense of self, i.e. the higher self. Or are they two different perspectives?
1: Oh, that's a really good, juicy question we could probably spend an hour on, but (laughs) I'll say, generally speaking, it's simpler to think about the ego from a psychological standpoint first and then overlay the higher self part. So if you think about the psychological aspect of ego and you think about like Piaget and children, how really young children are very prone to magical thinking, like their shadow is following them and the sun is following them. And then over time we start to be able to take more of an observer role, like we realize that I am separate from the sun and the sun is not following me. And we develop more and more complexity, concrete operational, formal operational thinking is the technical terms I think Piaget folks use. As we develop that complexity of thinking, we can at some point develop increasing self-reflective capacity. And without self-reflection, I don't know how you really grow up. So whether you do it through therapy or you do it through spiritual practices, um, we've got to find a way to see ourselves. And we get reflected back to in childhood by our parents and our teachers. But at some point, we need the help to see ourselves In a different way, not with other people's judgments, but with self-reflection and self-authorship so that we say, oh, okay, I'm like running around fulfilling the script. I was handed as a child. My parents told me to be a doctor, so I went to be a doctor. Do I want to be a doctor? You know, like, so sort of reflecting on... These are the values they gave me. These are the politics they gave me. Who do I want to be? And that's what a lot of therapists will help you do is to ask those questions to move into more authentic self. So they'll use language that's a little less spiritual and talk about the authentic self. Now Jung, Carl Jung, student of Freud who then spinned off made his own school of psychology, which I love, believed in the soul and believed in this sort of sense of collective unconscious and that there was something innate that was when he said authentic self was more like the higher self. And that somewhat overlaps with what we might call soul or spirit. What you believe about this is obviously there's huge variation in people's beliefs, but what I believe is that there is a collective impulse for growth and for goodness. And if you believe there's a collective impulse for growth and goodness that can find its way through me into expression, it's going to come through me from this authentic self slash higher self using kind of Jungian slash spiritual terms. I am most able to be an effective channel for that best part of me when I've done my growing up work. I can feel that and I did feel it as a child, but I couldn't act on it as effectively as a child as I could today having done so much self-awareness work where I can reflect on my own motivations, challenge my own motivations, challenge my perceptions, realize that my perception of you might be completely wrong and therefore the loving action I might take would not be received as love by you because I'm not really seeing you, I'm seeing some projection of you. So it's a complex question that you have asked. It's enormous. I don't see them, <laughs> that. was just
0: a simple like, one.
1: A <laughs> simple question becomes <laughs> this huge answer. <laughs> it's not a good versus evil. Ego's bad and higher self is good. It's this really more beautiful question of the lotus blooming from the mud. And the mud is part of the process, you know? The doo-doo of our lives is part of what fertilizes our growth <laughs> and, and turns into this beautiful blossom, which we are capable of becoming. And it's never a stagnant thing, and it's always a bit of a mystery.
0: That's a beautiful metaphor for understanding ego, ego, higher self relationship. Um, I love it. Thank you so much for that. Sure. The other question I have is a religious one. I don't have a religion. I wasn't raised with religion, so it's always been a distant contemplative thing for me, a mystery to me as to why and how people get involved in religion. And you mentioned earlier that you left the Roman Catholic church and joined the unity church and which I don't know much about. And so the question I have is for someone who has done extensive research on spirituality across religions, how did you then pick Unity Church, is it a Christian church, or is it beyond Christianity?
1: So that's actually a hotly debated question among people who are in unity. Some of them don't like the label Christian because they have associated it with those kinds of Christians who are very dogmatic and restrictive and judgmental. Um, But technically speaking, it does arise from the Christian worldview. It is what's called a new thought church. It's over 100 years old, probably 150 at this point. Um, And it arises at the period of time when people are really wanting to be in direct relationship with God, so without the mediation of a priest. But nonetheless, like why bother having groups, okay? So the core of your question, I think, is why bother having a church? Like if you can be in direct relationship with God and if you can work on your spiritual intelligence, why have any organization in your life? And I think it's a good question. Organizations can be helpful and organizations can be obstructive. So the core question is, is this organization helpful? I found a phrase from Buddhism that I really love, which helps explain why I hang out here. And it is that there are three jewels that the person needs to fulfill themselves on the path. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha is the role model. Buddha is not a God in the Buddhist faith. Buddha is the role model who reached enlightenment and shows that it is possible. Unity treats Jesus the same way. Jesus is not seen as God. Jesus is seen as the elder brother who figured it out, who really meant it when he said, do as I do, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, like that's the essence of unity if I were to boil it down. so. You need a role model that you're following, a Buddha. You need a Dharma, which is a teaching. So you need an instruction or a set of moral precepts that help you sort of figure out what's the right way to be a human being in this life because life is complicated. And then you need the Sangha, which is the group of like-minded, committed practitioners. And the purpose of the Sangha is to be your support system When you're ready to fall apart, and to be your BS detector when you're full of yourself. So that's why I'm in an organization. (laughs) I love having a sangha of like-minded practitioners who will support me when I need support, and will call BS when necessary, (laughs) and you know suggest that I might want to reconsider something, or, (laughs) or I can just see the impact of my being am i being who i want to be and they will reflect back to me and help me take the next step so the sangha helps to reinforce the dharma we teach within that and uh, it's a loving community i have come to really appreciate how individualistic american culture is and we are obsessed with doing it ourselves and i think that is part of the toxicity that has gotten us to where we are So I think a recognition of our interdependence with each other as human beings and with ecosystems and Mother Earth is part of what will heal us. So the Sangha, I think, might be even a larger concept than just thinking about your church, but thinking about Mother Earth as part of our Sangha. And she is busy reflecting back to us our BS. (laughs) 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 I love it. By the way, that's two meanings. BS means baloney or you know what, or your belief system. So reflecting back (laughs) to us, our belief system that economic growth at all costs is our goal. And the the price we've been paying for that is being made apparent. Yes,
0: and I think it's becoming, people are more willing to call that out and actually see that, that the whole growth is good, uh, value-based system has got problems. And there was, I just saw it flash through my Facebook feed uh, last night, forgive me, because I don't know who said this, but they were interviewing, maybe it was the CEO or chair of pharma. And he was saying, we don't exist to help sick people get better. We exist to produce results for the shareholder. Yeah. Um, I think this is a common philosophy. And yet there's, there's also a huge push in the world, like with B core certification saying, no, you know, we're not about just profits. We're about for the planet. I think it's a It's wonderful to hear that there is a movement of people who are willing to challenge that and to actually pick apart that one of the fundamental pieces of individualism and pushing that growth is good concept in their systems and to challenge it and to look for something bigger. Um, Thank you for answering that question.
1: I'm sorry. You can only pursue profit at the expense of people when you are living in a separated mindset. Mm,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And advanced spiritual intelligence talk is not a separate mindset. We're all connected.
1: Right. And your pain becomes my pain. And it becomes a self-correcting system. I think if we can keep from killing ourselves and ruining the planet long enough, we'll get to this place where we'll realize if I harm you, I'm harming me. So this is really a dumb idea. So why don't we have a different idea? <laughs> yeah, I
0: love it. I love it. That's great. Um, Cindy, one last question. And it's it's a big maybe a big question and maybe a small question. So if leaders are to grow and evolve... Is there a single practice that you would recommend as a starting point for folks?
1: Generally speaking, when I'm brought in to do executive coaching, the first thing I end up teaching is emotional intelligence because Western civilization in general has idealized IQ and being technically competent and has elevated the sort of separated self and being tough and suppressing your feelings none of which is very helpful for long-term happiness or for really being an effective leader long-term. So I would say the first thing I usually suggest to people is working on their emotional self-awareness, which means can you name the emotion that you're feeling right now and can you identify the things inside of you that triggered that, which would mean I am interpreting, for example, this thing I'm feeling right now is embarrassment. I am feeling embarrassment right now because I am interpreting the look on people's faces as they're disgusted by something and I'm assuming that's about me and I'm assuming it's because I wore the wrong clothes today and therefore I'm feeling embarrassed. That is a very high level of emotional self-awareness to name the emotion and to understand the trigger. Once you understand the trigger, you can challenge the assumptions and in the challenging of the assumptions is so much power. If you don't learn to put a pause between stimulus and response, there's no power. In the pause is your power. So I would say if there's only one practice to start with, it's pause and think about and learn from the assumptions you're making in every situation about yourself, about other people, about what's going on, and become more refined and more accurate over time in those things.
0: Fantastic. And I think that is a very useful and practical thing for people to walk away with. And I've worked on the practice of the pause many, many times and bring that work to my leaders as well, is to help them just take a breath.
1: Yep. Long, slow, deep (laughs) belly breaths are beautiful things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Cindy, thank you so much for coming online today. Uh, We are in different time zones. So I appreciate that you made your schedule work for this. I am deeply grateful for you for this webcast and for everything that you're doing in the community and for the world at large. So thanks again.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for everything you're doing as well.